suddenly we were arrested and we were put, we were stripped virtually naked and we were put in a torture prison. And it was really horrible. And we were there for 16 days and nights and almost everyone else who was kept there was killed. I mean, it was a really, really horrendous experience. And it's fabulous looking at torture prison experiences through hindsight because you knew, you know, you got out. So that's great. But at the time when they were killing people every night and I was taken into this fully loaded torture room every night to be interrogated, I just didn't know how this whole thing was going to pan out. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Diaries. In today's episode, we're speaking to a documentary maker, author and fantastic storyteller about some of his adventures and tales across the Middle East, including his time spent in a torture prison in Pakistan his search for gold in Afghanistan, and his time living and working in Casablanca, Morocco. We delve into the story of Dar Khalifa, the Caliph's house, which has been turned into an award-winning book. And if you're a fan of Arabian Nights, you don't want to miss this. Our guest has a unique take on our Call to Adventure segment, talking about getting lost in a city with technology. And in the Pay It Forward section, he raises an important topic about underprivileged children in India. So settle in and enjoy this fantastic conversation with Tahir Shah. Tahir Shah, welcome to the Adventure Diaries. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Absolutely great. Excellent. Well, it's it's an honour to, to to have you here today. Uh, I've been so excited about this, having just finished your, your book, The Caliph's House, which is uh, going to be a bit of focal point today, but just as a, as a general way of introducing uh, you know, Tahir Shah. Uh, you're an author, a journalist, but you're also a documentary maker, aren't you? And a, and a very much a rich storyteller. You've hosted some documentaries for the likes of Na- National Geographic, the History Channel, and Channels 4 and 5 in the UK as well. So some documentaries, I believe, The Search for King Solomon's Mines, The House of the Tiger King, and The Search for Some Lost Treasure in Afghanistan. Uh, and obviously you've written several books, one of which, as I said, is a Caliph's House, which we want to touch on today. But I think it all started back in, was it Turnbridge Wells in the UK? So if you talk us through your, your beginnings and what led to that life of adventure. Yeah, thank you. And let me say what a delight to be with you. Um, I'm speaking from the Caliph's House, Dar Khalifa in Morocco, in Casablanca. So I hope that our Wi-Fi will, will stay sharp. So, yeah, I think, I had a very, very odd childhood, and a lot of it took place, as you said, um, in the southeast of England, near Tunbridge Wells, in um, in a very, very beautiful house that my parents had called Langton House. And I found out later that it was the house where Baden-Powell, who started the Boy Scouts, Lord Baden-Powell, he lived there as a kid as well. And he actually had the same bedroom as me or I had the same bedroom as him. And we played in the same forest, which came with the house or woods. And um, it made him into, you know, an outside kind of person who then started the Boy Scouts because he loved being outside in these woods. And it made me quite adventurous as well. Um, I don't know why. I think our childhood, and I've got two sisters, so our childhood was 
odd, as I say. And it's only as an adult that you really begin to piece it together. Because I just thought everyone lived in kind of big, old, white houses. And we had all kinds of people dropping by the whole time because my father was a writer called Idris Shah, and he wrote books about, um, you know, uh, Sufis, if anyone knows what that is. It's a kind of mystical thought, which is often linked to the Arab world and Islam. But he had a lot of very prominent fans. So we had people like J.D. Salinger dropping by who wrote um, Catcher in the Rye and um, Doris Lessing, who was a very famous novelist, and but all kinds of other people. A lot of them weren't famous, but it was this great kind of human stew that are, are you know, of life. And these, I'm just thinking about it now, these people who would turn up often at weekends, you know, they'd look me up and down because I was just a kid and they'd always give suggestions. One of them was an old army colonel and, you know, the kind with a little white mustache and he, he was dressed impeccably. Most of them are dead now, those colonels. And he said that I should go and cross the deserts of Arabia. And I, you know, I used to pull out my school atlas and ask questions. And um, this lady, Doris Lessing, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature uh, a few years before her death, she suggested that I get out of Langton Green in, uh, and Langton House as soon as I could, and that I go to Africa because she had been brought up in what was now, what's now Zimbabwe. And what I think was just so wonderful about our childhood was um, meeting these oddball characters. You know, it seems as if no one was normal and anyone who was normal was actually the weirdest of all, but they were just trying to keep a lid on things and trying to pretend to be normal. And and our dad and our mom were definitely not normal. I mean, they were, you know, hugely eccentric and interesting characters. I mean, our dad was from, uh, my father, just Shah, was from Afghanistan, but he could never take us there as kids. So even though we were living in this little English village, Langton Green, he would tell us to pretend we were in Afghanistan. And half the time we were dressed up in English, sorry, in Afghan clothes, and all the furniture was Afghan. I mean, it was nuts, but, but it was fabulous at the same time. Yeah, no doubt that's had a had a material impact in your storytelling and your your creativity. No, no doubt. You know, absolutely. And let me just say this: uh, I'm thinking about it before I even blurt it out, and I think this is accurate. In our childhood, nothing was as valued or as valuable as stories, and nothing. Mm-hmm at all was as valued as being able to tell a story well and to hold court within the family, even if it was my mother, father, and the Labrador. Um, They wanted us telling stories and telling what had happened to us in story form. And I wrote in an introduction to one of my books somewhere that when we were kids, it was we were always being told stories, you know, stories about magicians and genies and stories from the Arabian Nights and stories of wonder and even stories about stories. And I think I think my sisters are the same as well, that 
this is hardwired into us. Sometimes throughout our lives, I think we've kind of thought, come on, this is just too much. But I found that both my sisters and I have all brought our kids up this way too. So whether our kids like it or not. So I think I think it's this wonderful matrix that um, can pass on ideas and information and really get us, I don't know, get us to see the world in a different way. Yeah, I think I think I, I read or I heard that your your son is it Timur is now an author and a bit of a storyteller as well. So that that you're passing that that creativity on, and and, and that's obviously yeah. come from yeah yeah he he just turned twenty, and I never suggested to him ever that he should write a book. I there's too much book writing and too many books in this house, and too much talking about books. And so I kind of gave him and my daughter Ariana break. Oh, that's my site. That's my viewpoint. But um, last year, or was it this? Yeah. Last year, he started working on a book and it came out this summer. It's called An Ordered Experience. And what I like most about it, I like a lot of things about it. What I like most about it is it's him and it's not me telling him what to do because I kept well clear and it's his journey. And I love that it's his first footsteps on his journey, you know, in, you know, in discovering himself and discovering the world, you know, the world around him. He's touching on the theme of storytelling. Obviously, you've written several books, but, but as I touched on earlier, you've done some very visual work as well in, in those documentaries. How do you find going from the written or the typed words to being on camera and and trying to captivate an audience and, you know, get that storytelling over? But, I mean, it's such a good question, Chris, because I love book writing. I love being there at a... Okay, I write on a computer, but I love being there with the computer and me and some scribbled notes that I can't even read and... <laughs> I love that whatever I write gets published pretty much. And and filmmaking is all about, um, it's all about pooling ideas and a group effort. And, okay, I know a lot of people like it, but I cannot bear having, you know, once, once I've come up with an idea and I've owned it and I've, I've really crafted this idea, I can't, I can't bear... Um, a producer, it's always the producer, screaming, yeah, well, we don't have a budget for that, or why do we need that anyway? Or let's change it, you know? I like um, I like the insular, insular kind of world of the writer, but the documentaries that I made, I made some really difficult documentaries to make. Like I made this one in the Peruvian jungle. It was called House of the Tiger King. Not to be confused with Tiger King, which came out during COVID, <laughs> which is that yes. bizarre thing. And because of that, <laughs> we got so, oh so many, we got so many hits, you know. But House of the Tiger King, we were searching for the lost city of Paititi, which is the great, um, I don't know, uh, lost city of the Incas, and it's, it's thought to be deep in the Peruvian jungle. We thought, or I thought it was in Madre de Dios, this incredibly dense jungle. 
um, actually quite far apart from the Amazon. I had been in the Amazon a lot before. And we spent 16 weeks, one six, 16 weeks filming there. We all got dengue fever. We all got tired. It was just so miserable. And um, at the same time, it was, it, it was the most magical, vibrant, unbelievable experience, as was when I made a film in Ethiopia looking for uh, the gold mines of King Solomon, King Solomon's mine, mm. which I believe have been in Ethiopia. And at the time, I thought that had been the hardest trip one could ever do. And then we went to the Peruvian jungle, and it was so much harder. And then after that, I made a documentary in Afghanistan. And we had um, searching for the lost treasure of Ahmed Shah Durrani. It's valued at like $500 billion. And where we were going to Afghanistan, I'm chuckling now, but I wasn't there. When we were going, um, we... We were in Pakistan, at the, we meaning me and my two Swedish colleagues, my long-suffering filmmaker <laughs> friends. Um, I was walking down the street talking, and they were filming me. And this was just after the London bombs in 2005, I think. And suddenly we were arrested, and we were put, we were stripped virtually naked, and we were put in a torture prison. And it was really horrible. And we were there for 16 days and nights. And almost everyone else who was kept there was killed. I mean, it was a really, really horrendous experience. And then once we got out, which was not particularly easy to do, um, then we went a few months later to Afghanistan, and we went a few times to make this documentary. And while filming that, um, my great friend, uh, the director, David Flamhawk, he was shot. And I wasn't shocked very badly. Yeah, it was really <laughs> shocking. Wow. He was shot in the thigh. And it wasn't very, very bad, but he was really shaken up. And and I, I kind of re be. remember thinking later, yeah, I remember thinking later, oh, I wish I had been shot because then I could have <laughs> had a huge, fabulous story to tell. Because David Flamholt's story was better than mine because he had been shot. But these days I'm... You know, I'm thinking of doing documentaries again, um, but over the last few years, I've been churning out books because because mm. it's so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Just t touching back on that experience in Pakistan. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of kind of rolled through that like it was just you know you were held up at customs, but it sounds like you were thrown in what was a bit of a torturous environment. Did did that have an did that have any sort of bearing on your view of the world and traveling across the, the, the Middle East or how did it make you feel? Yeah. The weird thing about, it's a good throwaway line. The weird thing about torture prison is when you're in it, you don't know if you're going to get out of it and you don't know when you're going to get out of it. And it's fabulous looking at torture prison experiences through hindsight because mm -hmm. you knew, you know, you got out. So that's great. But at the time when they were killing people every night and I was taken into this fully loaded torture room every night to be interrogated, I just didn't know how this whole thing was going to pan out. Um, I want to, I want to describe two details that I just think are quite interesting. 
when when she see torture prisons, like in James Bond, you know, there's always they bring out the instruments and they tell you we're going to torture you now. I wasn't tortured. I I wasn't. I was interrogated harshly mm-hmm. for sixteen nights, but I was taken into this room which had all the equipment. In James Bond, the equipment is beautiful. You know, it looks fabulous and um, it's all you know brand spanking new. In reality, torture prisons, which are being used, and they're being used every night, are um, in a pretty bad state, the, the torture rooms. There's always a lot of dried blood, and there's dried blood on the ceiling because they've cut people's um, uh, arteries. And there's always a central drain with a lot of hair in it, which means you know people have been treated roughly. And I met a guy who had been... Who had been um, kept in, I think it was in Rwanda in the 1990s, in a torture prison. And he was an old war correspondent. And he said, yeah, what, what was yours like? And I described it. And he said, was there a central drain? And he was Cockney, sorry, that's my ass up for a Cockney accent. And I said, yeah, there was a central drain. How do you know? They said, yeah, they usually have one. And then he said something to me that is another detail that I wish – I wish I could forget, and I wish that James Bond movies would have. Um, it's this. When you're really frightened, and I mean really frightened, because you think you're going to be killed right now, the smell of your sweat changes. You begin to sweat adrenaline. I think that's what it is. And it smells like cat pee, cat urine. And you're covered in this sweat, and you're trying to get it off you. You can't, and your clothes mm. stink of it. And this war correspondent said to me, "You know, did you smell? Did your, did your um, sweat smell like piss?" I, I remember him saying. And I said, "Yeah, it did." And thankfully, most of us never get the opportunity of having an experience like that. But the the last thing I'll say on it, you know, is that I I'm a believer in all experiences have a, a value and a place, and it certainly made me always, you know, uh, be grateful. You know, when I go out to a family meal or I'm with friends and or wearing a clean shirt, pretty thankful for all of that. Did you ever get any explanation as to why they were interrogating you or were they just suspecting because you were walking around with a camera and filming that you were up to no good? Yeah, good question. They were just suspecting. And then they grabbed us and then it just snowballed. It just... Hmm. It just spiraled out of control. And then nobody wanted to say they had made a mistake. So, and I was interrogated, as I say, every night. And I kind of raised every flag. I had just come from India and we were in Pakistan and we'd go to Afghanistan and um, all the flags went up. And I remember on the last, quite late, you know, into this whole thing, I had always been chained and usually stripped almost naked. And I had had military-grade blindfolds on most of the time. And one day they took the blindfolds and the chains off. And by this point, my fingernails had got really quite long. And I reached over. And actually, one detail that they have, James Bond, which is accurate, is they have these big floodlights on you, which is kind Mm. of crazy. Um, Because it, it doesn't really help. It just adds to their, you know, sense of doom. And I reached out. The questions were so bad from this young interrogator, military interrogator. 
I reached out and I sunk my fingernails into his face. And I shouted at him, you're an effing bastard. I'm giving you the best material possible. And you're asking me such crap <laughs> questions. And if you're going to kill me, kill me right now. Um, later, I told my friends who were in prison with me that. And they were like, hey, man, why did you do that? We all could have been shot. But... And then the interrogator admitted that he was only an, a, a trainee interrogator. And the next day, yeah, the next day they brought a colonel to interrogate me. And he was much politer, and I like that. Yeah, wow. Uh, who would have thought there is such a thing as a trainee interrogator? But I suppose you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, oh. exactly. And later he apologised, so we kind of made up. <laughs> Excellent. So so m- moving on then, because you, you are a far-travelled man, you've had lots of experiences, but the Kingdom of Morocco... What brought you to to Morocco? No, so before obviously the, the the purchase of Dar Khalifa. What we you know had you travelled to Morocco before or? Yeah, so my grandfather had moved. My Afghan grandfather had moved to Morocco in the sixties, and which is a story in its own right. But he had been in Tangier, which is in the north, and. In the 60s, it was kind of a wild whoopla, kind of a wild rumpus of a place with um, the beat writers, people like Paul Bowles were there, Kerry um, uh, Grant was there a lot of the time. My grandfather was friends with Timothy Leary, who had invented or pioneered, certainly, LSD. And my grandfather was kind of horrified by Timothy Leary, apparently. And, um, and when I was a tiny kid, before my grandfather died, he was knocked down in Tangier by a reversing Coca-Cola truck, unfortunately. Um, we would go up there and see him, and I can barely remember that, but it really made my parents obsessed with Morocco. And because my dad was trying to give us an Afghan childhood, which was clearly really <laughs> quite challenging, um, particularly in Tunbridge Wells, so he would take us to Morocco and say, this is pretty much like Afghanistan. You know, it's got mountains and deserts. It's Muslim. It's got traditions like Afghanistan. So we kind of seeped, it seeped into our veins. And much later, and I've been to Morocco, I've been here quite a lot over the years, but it's so different visiting as a kind of a tourist and then for a few days and then leaving. I suddenly had this brainchild, this sort of brainwave that when we had tiny kids, uh, Ariana and Timur, that we would move from the East End and move to Morocco. And my wife said, that's fabulous, but can we afford it? And I said, Morocco, it's so inexpensive. Of course we can. She thought I had said Monaco. Oh. And <laughs> she thought we were moving to Monaco, Okay, which we weren't. That's quite the difference. And through... <laughs> It is well, they both speak French. I've been to Morocco. <laughs> they both speak French. Yeah, but in, in in Morocco, you can butcher the French language, and it, it thrills everyone. But I had started looking at houses for sale, and I just knew I wanted a fabulous big Moroccan house for almost no money. I kind of knew what I wanted. And I found fabulous houses. I found one in Fez, which is enormous in the interior, and 
one in Marrakesh that fell through. They both fell through, and then one in Tangier. And then just out of the blue, the mother of one of my dearest school friends from when I was like 13, um, my friend's mother had bought Dachalifa, this house, as a kind of Moroccan fantasy. And she left me a message out of the blue and said, come and look at Dachalifa. And I didn't realize at the time the house was in a what the French called bidonville, which means shanty town. Bidon mm. is an oil drum, so oil drum town because of the metal, like corrugated iron. And I remember coming here, you know, it was winter, it was 20 years ago coming here, and there was slime and moss on the walls, and the house had been empty for a long time, and I remember thinking this is the most magical, extraordinary, bizarre place that there is. And then I heard from the Guardians, because it came with Guardians, <laughs> whose families had worked here for generations. I heard from them that the house was haunted with genies, what they called jinn in the Arab world, jinnun. And yeah, jinns. And we were told we could never really go inside the house or certainly never use the toilets. I was like, what? <laughs> and my wife was like, we've got to use the loo. And um, I agreed to the guardians', wish, guardians wishes to have an exorcism because they said it was the only way we could keep the gins down. So we had this wacky exorcism. And what I love about Morocco is it's kind of all the things I don't love about, you know, Europe. In in London, if I needed some exorcists, cut price. I don't know even where I'd go looking. And in Morocco, someone said to me, go to Meknes, which is, um, you know, inland, an hour and a half, two hours. And so I went to Meknes. It took me 12 minutes after arriving in Meknes and asking for, for exorcists. It took me 12 minutes to get my first exorcist. And they were so affordable. I hired 20 and the dealer, the exorcist dealer, he threw in four exorcists for free. And so we had this huge exorcism that went on for days and nights. And the rooms, and there are a lot of rooms. There's like 30 rooms, 35 rooms maybe. And they were all drenched in blood and milk. And there was drums beating and people whooping. And I kept saying to the exorcist, okay, you can go now. I don't think my wife's happy. Because firstly, she thought we would go to Monaco. And now there's an exorcism. And they said, we'll only leave when we've done our business, when we've done the exorcism. And they wanted me to kill a sheep, or they wanted to kill a sheep in every room, which would have been like a whole flock. And I couldn't afford that. So we've got it down to one sheep. And the rest is history. And then, you know, living here, my kids have grown up here. and. Like three or four years ago, I was thinking, or less, three years ago, I thought of selling the house because it's quite big and now the shantytown is gone. And I love shantytown. And there's big, expensive apartments all around. But I decided to keep the house. And it's actually now been found, possibly or even probably, to be the original landmark that the Spanish had called La Casablanca, the White House. And oh. it's after that that the city is named. I know, which is oh, kind of freaky, really. 
Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just strange. It's very hard to prove, but the Financial Times did a big story on it quite recently, and I don't really care if it's Lacasablanca or not. But I love, I love it, and I love that it's probably the strangest house in the world. <laughs> well, I, I th- yeah, I think you touched on some of the. I mean, firstly, I'll say your writing in the book is incredibly vivid. I mean, very evocative. It's it's eccentric in areas. It's hilarious in areas, and it's downright like what the in in certain areas. I mean, it's full of characters, isn't it? Like the guardians, the gins or genies, the architect, the stamp collector, Zora Kamal. I mean, I could go on. It's incredible. You know, you know, Chris. The strange thing is. When I wrote The Callous House, I had never written a book about a place, uh, you know, a place where I lived or, or whatever. I, at that time, I'd go to the, you know, to Ethiopia or Afghanistan or Peru or <clears throat> um, God knows where, India, to write, get research and write a book. And I'd never planned to write a book about Darkadifa, but I, I remember quite early on um i was in the garden and and there was a, a banging at the door not a normal banging but a real banging as if someone had a banging battering ram and they were trying to knock the door down and i asked the guardians what's going on and the guardian said oh yeah that's the police they're trying to break the door down and i said well we better open the door because the police because i'd come from england where you kind of take the police seriously. And the guardian said, oh, no, 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 no. It's the last <laughs> thing we'll do, open the door to the police. And it was at that moment I realized, oh, this is really good material because this is the oddest thing ever. And the other reason I wrote The Callous House, I really want to say this, that this was 2004 I was writing it. I think it was published in 2005. And I... This was, you know, it was the world not long after 9-11. And I I had realized Morocco isn't a land of terrorists. This is a very, very sweet country. It's its its own bizarre mixture of culture, traditions, religion, geography, and all of that. And I have been in New York and just for a couple of days, and I had been in Times Square, and I'd seen um, in the evening, I saw a kind of familiar figure walking through Times Square, and it was a guy in a Moroccan jalaba. Anyone who's been here might know them. They're these hooded robes. and they, It's kind of an overcoat. It covers everything. Mm-hmm. And this guy, who was obviously Moroccan, <clears throat> was carrying his shopping. And I overheard two Americans, one say to the other, Who's that? Look, that's a terrorist. And the other said, yeah, that's a terrorist. And I suddenly thought to myself, actually, that's not. That's just a, like a little Moroccan guy who somehow found his way to New York. Um, and I thought, I want to try to show Morocco in a way that isn't the kind of book, you know, the big coffee table books on Morocco with lovely buildings. I'm not really interested in those, although I own some of them. I thought it would be really nice to kind of show Morocco from the inside out, which is this bizarre place where almost anything is possible. I mean, 
on an on an hourly basis the craziest things happen here you know and i'm i'm kind of i'm addicted to it <laughs> yeah I, I i i mean reading the book it was I, I couldn't put the book down honestly and it's i think i also heard that you said you're a great rereader rereader and i, I mean I, I will be rereading that again when it ended it was kind of like I, I wish it I wish it didn't end because I think I could talk forever about it. I, I mean, just, yeah, just the things that happened through, throughout that time, like trying to get through the building work and the frustrations and just the, the laid back attitude to it. And then the, yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit of a kind of roller coaster, but I could sense that you were going along with it because, you know, Morocco was choosing you and accepting you. And it is, I mean, it, it is what it is really, isn't it? And it, yeah, but you just wouldn't get that in the Western world. And it was like it seemed like one calamity and one ad- adventure. You're right. Listen, I'm just thinking about I'm thinking about this morning. Um, I just bought a new car, new again, it's 23 years old, and it's falling to bits. <laughs> um, but it's a Beetle, a Volkswagen Beetle, and I have one of the the new version. And I, my first car was a Beetle, and so I saw this Beetle for sale. I thought I've got to have it. I've got to have it. So I bought it. It's falling to bits around me. Um, I went around this morning to try to buy stuff and do stuff. I tried to buy some. Um, well, I did. I bought. I bought a lot of bags of cement because we're doing some work. Uh, but everything else I tried to do, you know, didn't work out. I tried to meet two people. I tried to go to the vet. People didn't turn up at the vet. They were digging. They were digging a cellar, and the entire vet was shaking. And I, I, I mean, I've got this little puppy who was, and I terrified. I mean, this is only in Morocco, you know. What I love about it is, as a country, it's a country which, you know, a lot of the, it's not necessarily the safety lines, you know, safety nets are removed, but it's a bit like that. It's a, it's just that you can do stuff and. The police won't stop you necessarily, and um, just things, possibilities um, spiral or or snowball. You know, I often find in England something won't happen because um, because there's this rigid system holding the whole place in England. You know, Europe in in check, and here it's as if. It's as if, you know, the stabilizers of the culture are taken away. And so for people, nutcases like me who just, who are addicted to this, um, it's as if, you know, this is the glory zone for me. Can I ask a favor? If you're enjoying the show, can you give us a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel on YouTube? And if you happen to be listening to the audio-only version, can you give us a follow along there too? It'll really help grow the channel. Get some fantastic guests coming up with some truly inspirational stories. Now, let's get back to this episode. Thank you. Has there ever been any doubt in your mind over the 20 plus years about, you know, enough's enough? This is just too batshit crazy for me. I, I, I need a change or, or not? Six years ago, my kids were at school in England and I went and lived there for a couple of years. I lived in Bath, actually, in a very nice flat in Bath. It was very lovely. There was no surprises. It was, like, very beautiful. And I had been so used to crazy stuff happening all the time. I'd, like, walk around 
<laughs> at first, <laughs> like almost expecting crazy stuff to happen. Nothing happened. And yeah, I didn't meet crazy people. And I thought, what's happening? And then I tried to search out crazy people in England. And then sooner or later, I just just felt I've got to come back to, you know, Dachalifa and Casablanca because um, because anything is possible here. And it's so close to Europe. But it's like, it's this strange, I think what's so amazing about it is it's this strange kind of twilight zone of cultural crossroads. So you've got French architecture and Berbers and Arabs and, you know, all kinds of other people. And it's all this thrown in, in into this sort of bucket as a kind of human stew. And if you're like a writer like me, it's just mesmerizing. I just, you know, I can't get enough of it. Plenty of material, no doubt. So what is it like just sitting in one of the coffee houses, you know, reading the stories, sitting, sipping black Moroccan coffee and just watching the world go by? Surely there's plenty of stories and material. Yeah, and actually, you know, that's kind of something that I like to do. So I noticed that, okay, on the rare, something I love about Casablanca where I am, there are almost no foreigners, no, and certainly no tourists. But on the rare times, in the rare times that I actually see a, a foreigner um, or talk to one, they often seem to be missing what's really going on because there's this cool stuff going on. So what I like to do is, you know, go and sit in. There's a rough area around the corner that I love with the greatest junkyard that I know. Uh, an area called Hey Hassani. And I go to the junkyard that most days, actually. I always kind of zigzag through there and check out what's new. And I love to sit in a cafe there and watch the world go by. And if you, I think as a, as a foreigner in a country, we're blessed. You know, we've got, um, we've got fresh eyes, particularly if you've gone away and then come back, you're, You've got the chance to see stuff that a lot of people would just miss. And I love that. I love I love just watching someone, like with a cart. I did it yesterday. Someone had arrived with a you know, hand cart at the junkyard and he was trying to sell some some old shelves and stuff. And I just loved watching him and watching how he behaved and how he talked to one of the guys with the, you know, junkyard stalls. And I love this interaction and I think as a as a foreigner in a place, you you have to kind of calm yourself and look out for stuff like that, and not necessarily look for the big picture or big ticket items, as Americans say. I'm interested in just looking at a friend talk to another friend in a cafe, and mm. I'm not really interested in you know big magnificent you know things happening. I'm interested kind of at a micro level. Well, how does Casablanca compare to to the likes of Mar- Marrakesh or Fez for, for or Tangiers? Is it is it quite different, or I haven't been? In all honesty, yeah, Casablanca. Uh, I mean, Casablanca was built by the French. If you look at a map that's uh, you know from nineteen hundred, it won't even be on the map. It was pretty much built by the French 
um, next to a town that the Spanish used to go to called Onfa. The Spanish and the Portuguese were really into this town called Onfa, which was Phoenician. And it's kind of in the suburbs of Casablanca. It's this, you know, uh, uh, an area now, Onfa. But Casablanca is the commercial heart of Morocco. And I described it actually this weekend to someone who was visiting me from Europe. And I said, almost all the wealth in Morocco is in Casablanca. There's a bit in Rabat, which is the capital. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of cash in, you know, in uh, Marrakesh or Bez, but Tangier. But everything that is made really is sold in Casablanca. So uh, on Saturday, I went to a, there's a market that I love called Derb Omar. And I go there to buy cloth to make curtains and, and you know, all kinds of stuff. And what's incredible is like the sponge rubber in all the um, sofas and the mattresses for the entire country come through that market. And I guess millions and millions of dollars are going through there. So there's this kind of vibrancy that you don't get so much in other towns, certain wealth as well. So you see, it's something I'm, I'm not a great fan of. You see this bling bling. You see, um, you see a lot of black Range Rovers. I don't really know why, mm. because well, I heard that it's because the king was seen in a black Range Rover, so everyone had to get a black Range Rover. I don't know the bling bling crowd, but um. I prefer, you know, just normal Casablanca, like the junkyard that I said. And what I love about it, as I also said, there's very few foreigners and no tourists. And I noticed that foreigners go to Marrakech, and this is my opinion, and they would not like this, but foreigners often go to Marrakech and even to live there just to almost be a little bit crazy or to be perceived as you know, hippie-ish or crazier than they really are. And what, what I love about this city, about Casablanca, is there's all kinds of stuff going on here. It's a huge, crazy hub of mad mayhem. The driving, I mean, I've driven all over the world. This is some of the most challenging driving. It's like going into battle. And I feel like a warrior every time I drive my, my fluorescent blue Beetle, false like a beetle into that traffic. It's like I feel like it, I should have, you know, um, <laughs> flags and swords waving because it's it's madness, but it's it is totally, you know, totally addictive. It comes through in your voice and in, in your passion to hear it. I assume it's still it's still delivering for you twenty plus years later. It's still giving you everything that you need. You know, it really is, and. I think I think the big point is when you go to places and when you know places, even if it's you know where you're from and you've known them over a long time, you change. They change as well. The place changes, but you change. So every day, I suppose, I look at this house and this city in a different way. And I appreciate that the house and the city of Casablanca as well, have accommodated me through my own timeline. I really appreciate that. I was so raw when I arrived here. I didn't know anything. But at the same time, I feel that the more time I spent here in Dachalifa and in Casablanca, the more 
I don't understand it. And the less I know. <laughs> and it's maybe the greatest gift of all. You know, who wants to, you know, who wants to be in a place, maybe I don't, but some people do, who wants to be in a place where there are no questions and you have all the answers? I don't know. I love it just just like it is. Yeah. So, so for anyone listening that may be you know, planning an adventure to Morocco or wanting to come to Casablanca or even have reservations about coming to Casablanca, what would you say to that? I would say if you go anywhere, but certainly Morocco, don't just go around with an app or a tour book. Don't just see stuff for the sake of seeing it and then tick it off. Try and engage. Look, I, as I said earlier, I bought a lot of bags of cement this morning, and I bought a particular kind of cement from a particular bit of Casablanca. I'm not saying everyone should drop everything and go and buy cement in Casablanca, but it's an incredibly interesting learning curve. But what I am saying is go with, you know, wherever you go, go with a mission, engage with the place. Even if it's, you know, try to find a particular kind of teacup or something, I don't know, set yourself these goals and these missions. And um, and I'm fanatical about this. Don't just follow someone else's journey. Don't just follow the guidebook. Throw yourself in at the deep end. Don't use Google Maps, but instead get lost. You know, have an adventure because it's, you know, it's 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 waiting there for everyone. Yeah, cultural immersion. Just just throw yourself in the, the deep end and see see what yeah. happens. Get off a stop early. Just take the wrong bus. Just see what happens. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Oh my god! Totally. So so coming back to to Dar Khalifa, is it finished yet, or is it a, a, is it a living adventure? Will it ever be finished? Because I had been thinking of selling the house, like. Um, whatever, two or three years ago, I had moved everything out. I got really depressed because the shantytown went and mm. and then people with expensive black Range Rovers all moved in in the apartments around the house. And I was like depressed and I was offered a lot of money for the house, which did kind of enthuse me. But then I decided I didn't want that money and I loved Akhenifa. The The key point about that is if I sold, it will be knocked down. And I'm mm. I'm the guy who loves the house. So how could I let that happen? Um, so I've just renovated Dakhali for a gate over the last year. And we've I mean you can anyone sort of seeing this on if anyone's yeah. seeing the film, there's a, a kind of a big library here. Wow, I've got like I don't is... know, twelve or thirteen thousand books here. That I did not realise it was that big. Yeah, I didn't realise it was that large. That's incredible. There's a lot, but we had taken everything out and then I had to put all the books back in order because they're kind of kind of basically in order. And um, I love the idea that you can have a new adventure in the same old house. And um, one of the guardians has told me that, uh, he's told me, I was, was going to say it's a fact, but it's a bit of information. He has come out with this bit of information that in the courtyard out there, uh, which is supposedly the old part of the house, La Casablanca, it's very, very old, hundreds of years old. The Guardian says there is definitely 
a massive treasure buried by a djinn, a genie, in the courtyard. And, and it's there, and we could dig it up if we wanted. I've said to him, why, why would we want to dig it up? Would we really want all the problems that the treasure would give us? And he was quite down because he wanted the treasure. Wanted, and <laughs> we're talking as if the treasure is certain. He's like, sir, there's no, in our conversations, there's no question mark. Don't, don't, don't question treasure. It's like, it's certain and it's there and there's a gin. And, um, but he's also a bit happy not digging it up because he knows he'd have to actually do the digging. And I'd sit around because <laughs> I'm a lazy bastard. I'd sit around <laughs> looking. But, but I love stuff like that. I love that the house and the guardians and it all. You know, it's it's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, it's still. I was going to say, it still seems like it's it's, it's unearthing stories and surprises. Is it the same guardians that you've had all along, or or have they changed over the years? Good question. The guardians have changed. The one who's the main guardian now, I never wrote about him. Um, he uh, he was originally a gardener, a temporary gardener. Hired just to work one day a week. And now he's been here a very long time. And, you know, I have such respect for him. I have such enormous respect that um, it's just that, I don't know, when the house was empty for a couple of years, he never, you know, filled it with all his friends and had parties. Mm. And he's got such respect. And I need him more than he needs me, you know. Um, and I think that's the way I always look at things. I've got, I've got enormous, enormous respect for Morocco. And uh-huh. sometimes I hear Morocco, sorry, I hear foreigners, you know, bitching about Morocco. If I go down to Marrakesh, they're complaining because, you know, they've been ripped off or whatever. And my sense is, I just feel it's such an honor to be here because it's just, yeah. it's just, I don't know, it's a, such a kind, sweet place. I, I feel it to the you know to the marrow of my bones. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you're doing it justice. Your writing does it justice, and just your energy and the passion that comes across for it is is phenomenal. I mean, you're ticking the bot. This show is all about you know adventure, storytelling, but raising awareness and trying to inspire people. And I think anyone that listens to this or reads that book, you know, Morocco, Casablanca has got to be got to be on the on the plans so i hope uh, so yeah yeah so because i'm wanting to be kind of respectful of your time as well to hear what what's before we get to the closing traditions in the in the show which is the call to adventure and the pay it forward what what's next for to hear have you any other books or projects in the works I'm kind of writing a sequel at the moment to The Callous House. It's not really a sequel, but it's another book about Morocco. It's called Living with Gins, and <laughs> I'm writing it Excellent. at the moment. And I'm loving it. I'm loving, I'm loving it because it just lets me, you know, it lets me keep detailed notes of all the crazy stuff that's happening and then maybe use it. And I'm... I also, I started a foundation, which is called the Sherazad Foundation. Uh, I started it during COVID, and I'm doing a lot of work with that. Its goals are, are really to 
harness the you know the knowledge locked in stories and folklore. Um, Sherazad, it's named after Sherazad, who was the queen in the Thousand and One Nights, and it's also working to empower young women, or to rather than empower young women, to unpower, unempower young, uh, well, not young men, all men, and so mm-hmm. women can you know get opportunities. And we're also working to bridge cultures in unusual ways. And um, I, I, yeah, I just want to say to anyone listening to this, just don't ever listen to anyone who tells you you can't go on a big adventure or even a small adventure because it's too dangerous or crazy. My whole mission is don't really give anything too much thought. You know, when I wanted to look for this big lost city in Peru by Titi, um, I just had, I had about 150 pounds to spend on equipment and I didn't let that hold me back. I just, you know, I went online and I bought some cheap stuff. Just my big kind of, um, message to anyone who's interested is just go out into the world and have fun because the world's kind of waiting for you. And whenever I come back from adventures, you know, or I used to, to England, my old friends would just still be sitting in the pub and I would have been, you know, to the Amazon or to, you know, to the Himalayas or whatever and come back and they'd still be sitting there. And I thought in a way that was, it was kind of a waste. Yeah. You get one shot at this life, you know, it's, it's, and it's a big wide world out there. There's lots of stuff to, yeah. So, So probably touched on a little bit. Thank you for that. So, the two closing traditions are, so, so the first one is a call to adventure, which is an opportunity to give a suggestion of an activity, an adventure, or a place. So what's your recommendation to hear? Can you give me an example of someone else's that you've liked? Oh, yeah, so I... Uh, so I've done one today. So the... So I spoke to an adventurer actually this morning. So his recommendation was just to don't go far and wide. Just, you know, what's on your doorstep, you know, micro adventures. That's part of the, to the, you know, the, the show is about just going and doing things locally. It doesn't need to be a grand expedition necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I've had a few that I've been like hiking. Yeah, I'm a massive um, uh, fan of micro adventure and but I'm not going to say micro-adventure because you've had that. <sighs> I am I think what I'm going to say is this. We live in a world that is dominated by smartphone technology. I'm speaking to you on my iPhone right now. 20 years ago, this conversation in this way would have been unthinkable. And that is amazing. It's amazing. It also means that... I can navigate my way through Casablanca or the entire world to the accuracy of a meter and a half. And that is also amazing. But what I'm going to say is, I think people, and I'm thinking my kids' generation, but I'm thinking all people, because we, people like me, who's, I'm in my 50s, I had the joy of sampling the world before the internet and mobile phones. What I'm going to say is, I think people should have faith in themselves, trust themselves, trust their own 
potential. Turn off your mobile phone. Come to Morocco. Maybe, you know, use it as a camera because they're, they're great for cameras. But don't use the Google Maps. You know, get lost. Meet people. Enjoy yourself in a way that is becoming less and less obvious. You know, um, I I want to I want to say something. Wait, I I have on a I have on a bookshelf here several books by a guy who was a great friend of mine. He was called Wilfred Thesiger, and in the fifties and forties he crossed the empty quarter of the Arabian Desert twice. And I've got several of his books here. He was he was, and there's a picture of him when he was in the Arabian Desert. He was my greatest hero, and I loved him. And he died in 2004. And Wilfred Thesiger, when he, in 2003, I went to see him, and we were talking about mobile phones and that sort of thing. And he said, what is the point of a mobile phone? With it, you may never be lost. And that rings in my ears day and night. The greatest, it's giving me shivers right now. The greatest joy in my life, just about, is getting lost and learning from that and having the zigzag experiences of getting back on the track again. And I think getting lost is what we should all be aiming for, not to, not getting found. That is probably one of the best responses I've had to that question so far. I think that's, that's very profound. To, you know, switch off the technology and get lost. Incredible, incredible. Uh, yeah, that's that's really striking a chord. Uh, so finally then, so the pay it forward segment, that's about a good cause, raising awareness so anything that's dear to your heart. You've talked about the Sharadza uh, Foundation, so it may be that, but yeah, what is what is your suggestion or recommendation for paying it forward? For a charity or a good cause? Yeah, a charity or a good cause or a project, anything that we want to just raise awareness and get visibility, eyes and ears on, can be whatever you want. There are so many good causes and um, through Shara's Foundation, we're you know we're backing quite a lot of causes. There's a charity in India that I love, and it's called Each One Teach One. Each One Teach One, and what I love about it is it's so incredibly simple. Each One Teach One will take you if you're living on a railway track outside Delhi. And they will pay for your education all the way up to university level. And in return, they just ask that in the future, maybe once you've had an education, that you pay for someone else's education. And it's all kept very, very fluid and no one will ever check on you if you don't pay for someone's education. But I love that. I love it because it's this kind of micro-thinking which I think we need more of in our lives. We need, we need to solve problems at a small level if we want them to really be solved. We look at how governments are trying to solve problems and never manage to do it. And so each one, teach one, um, really sings to me. And I, I think it's the greatest thing. And I've been to their, you know, their award ceremonies where you see five or six generations who have, 
had educations and then helped others to be educated as well. And I think that kind of thinking is, I think that's profound and it's something we can learn from. Fantastic. Thank you. That is something really inspiring. So we'll link to both of those uh, and everything else you've talked about in the show notes and make sure that we get awareness and spread the word on that. So I think we're coming up to the end. I just want to thank you for your time, Tahir. I think it's safe to say, I mean, you are living an adventure. You're not going on one. I think you're living one. Casablanca is, yeah, honestly, I can't wait to visit. And hopefully maybe someday we can maybe share a sweet mint tea or something. But yeah, I've really, really enjoyed this episode and this conversation. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Right. Where can people who want to find out more about Tahir Shah, where, where can they go? I've got a website, which is tahirshah.com. And actually, I've, there's a Wikipedia page on me as well. And, um, and we didn't talk about publishing. I set up a publishing company called Secretum Mundi. I'll send you the link. Okay, <clears throat> As a way of showing everyone how to release work directly, particularly travel uh-huh. work directly, right. without you know having to go through an agent or a big, horrid publisher. And that's something I'm very passionate about. I'm very passionate that, uh, that people who want to write um, travel, that they should have as many of the you know, the barriers taken away as possible. Writing travel is the greatest joy that you can imagine. It's it's fabulous, you know, even as a blog. I mean, I'm just, I love seeing, you know, <clears throat> my kids or their generation or anyone else, you know, doing blogs on their travel because it's just about doing it for yourself and creating something that wasn't there before. Yeah. Leaving a bit of a legacy. Awesome. 